Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Martin Holden White is the founder and CEO of Grubby. As it's the start of 2023 and the beginning of the January, I couldn't think of a better guest to kick off the year. Martin founded Grubby with the mission to make plant-based cooking more convenient and accessible without costing the earth. Having a love for food and cooking from an early age, Martin was obsessed with the idea of creating healthy, delicious meal kits that make it super easy for people to cook and enjoy plant-based meals at home. Martin also cares deeply about running a responsible and sustainable business that does everything it can to put the planet first. Grubby uses local produce, 100% recyclable packaging, bike deliveries where possible, and even tell their customers the carbon footprint of each meal and compare it to the meat-based versions of that meal. So tune in to hear more about the positive impact of plant-based meals, building a D2C subscription business, how to be a sustainable business, becoming a B Corp, and being a sole founder. Hey, Martin, great to have you on the show. How are you? Hey, Craig, how's it going? Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, my pleasure. So look, I was um, I was going through your your career, uh, and there was one common theme, which was food. <laughs> so I just wanted to start with, yeah. Um, yeah, what attracted you to kind of the food, catering, hospitality sector initially, and like, what's kept you there so far? Yeah, so, well, I guess like going back a bit, I, I started out um, in a French kitchen on a school work experience, um, age 16. Um, not really sure why I chose it. I suppose I just enjoyed cooking and and, and whatnot at home and kind of decided to do that as for like a week uh, and then started working part time at this restaurant. Really just like loved the whole kind of atmosphere of the kitchen and being part of a crew and a team and, you know, just cooking nice food, basically. And I was just amazed at what they were producing there um, and ended up just sort of getting into food and hospitality ever since. I've never really worked in any, any other environment. I um, went to university studied food and hospitality and business and um, I sort of worked in events I worked on a cruise ship and a, um, then got into contract catering so it was like staff restaurants within offices um, and so I sort of did you know bits where it's front of house bits where it's back of house in kitchens um, and then kind of yeah landed landed on Grubby having worked in that office um, catering space where I felt that there was an opportunity to create something that people could grab on their way out of work so yeah, it started as a B2B concept where people could grab a recipe kit um, and then it turned into what is now a, a direct consumer business having been um, affected by COVID just a little bit. Um, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, things have changed, but um, you know, ultimately um, still have like a real love and, and, and passion for food. Nice, nice. Glad to hear it. And we're going to talk obviously about Grubby in a lot more detail um, shortly, but um, I guess uh, you obviously had this like huge passion for, for food and, and cooking what was your like personal journey into like plant-based cooking and like a plant-based diet yeah so i mean before kind of like getting into the whole plant-based thing i'm not fully vegan yet um i eat plant-based about four or five times a week now um and when like grubby first started uh, interestingly um the first concept was vegetarian um because you know i don't know three four years ago vegan was much less of a kind of thing i suppose and i didn't have I was very not very well versed in it really um i started to eat more plant-based at the time and you know i had experience in kitchens and in food and as a um as a chef and kind of just thought you know hold on a minute there's got to be um you know like a way to make this simpler for people um because it was 
frustratingly complicated cooked tasty plant-based food um and that was where the whole idea came from it was like well if more people are going to eat plants which i you know obviously agree is great for the environment great for the planet and you know it's a great thing for everybody to do um it's got to be simpler because you know the vast majority of meals in the uk are cooked at home obviously you know takeaways are still a big thing but they they only account for about 30 percent um and you know 70 percent or so um is is stated as, as being cooked at home so if it's not easy to cook then nobody's going to cook the stuff and that's what grubby is is, is really trying to solve for for everybody you know we're not like our products isn't about only appealing to vegans i think about 20 percent of our of our customers are vegan um and so you know a huge portion of our customers are just meat eaters who or you know pescatarians vegetarians who are trying to reduce their meat intake and and um you know we're, we're trying to appeal to everyone in that sense yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense and you know like I'm, i class myself as like a flexitarian like I've, I've cut out most dairy but i still eat meat um but probably cut back by 40 50 percent compared to what i used to eat too um but yeah using products like grubby or all plants like where it makes it really easy to eat plant-based meals and it's like delicious without having to go and sift through loads of recipes and find stuff wherever you've got the cupboard makes makes your life so much easier to uh, talk about you know, plant-based diets um, for a little bit, um, or even just like you said, just eating more plant-based meals, like can you just explain like wh- why is that better for the planet? Like what is it about like, meat and dairy that's not so good for the planet? Yeah, I mean, so from a from a purely like plant-based perspective, like the the land to me is like such a like huge part of it. Um, you know, the amount of land that it takes to like farm beef um cattle is is extraordinary um you know it's not just the land that they're using but it's the land of the stuff that they eat um you know to just put it really really simply um is is vast like you know it takes like so many hectares of land to produce one animal um whereas obviously to grow veg is you know much more um efficient in terms of land use um, and in terms of water use um and you know, obviously there's the the environmental side of things, but also from a health perspective, there's, you know, so many studies out there, which, you know, are, uh, you know, guiding us towards having like a, a more heavily like plant-based um, diet. Um, and, you know, there's like a stat that we've, we've sort of quoted several times in things that we, that we put into literature and whatnot, which is that if, if every household in the UK changed just one um, meat-based meal, to a to a plant based meal, um, it would be the equivalent of uh, of taking sixteen million cars off the road for a year in the UK, um, which would save fifty million tons of CO two. Um, and if that happened, we'd pretty much hit our COP twenty six target already, like just from that one change. Um, and it always amazed me that, like, in that whole you know all of these climate summits that you know feel like we've been. Um, going back and forth for the last few years, you know that you know some people are very frustrated with the outcomes of them. That it is unbelievable how little plant-based played a part in that, um, and how little government will hang their hat on anything to do with plant-based. Um, like Rishi Sunak, without getting too political with it all, but you know, in one of his debates, um, he was asked, you know, about about the whole like vegan thing. He was, oh yeah, you know. Uh, my my children sort of tell me to you know eat a bit more plant based, and we should probably do a little bit. But it's just like they're so kind of, you know, it feels like they're just not educated um, on that whole area, and it is so so new that it just gets very little sort of political attention, I'd say. Um, and ultimately, that is what's going to change 
you know people's ways and yeah i mean it's like it's like the whole milk thing when milk became such a big thing it was basically one big marketing campaign and it's kind of the kind of the same thing really with the meat industry so um yeah yeah no really interesting and and yeah i was i was going to ask you what you thought the barriers were to like people eating more plant-based but i think you really covered it like there's kind of the convenience aspect there's the, like the lack of awareness or education around why it's it's beneficial anything else you'd add to that though is there any other yeah. like big barriers that you see yeah i mean um i think the the perception of cooking plant-based meals is that they're not going to carry loads of flavor and um, that they're going to take lots of time and ultimately you know when you think back to like well when i think back to when i was a child it's like you know the food that mum and dad cooked for me which is really tasty food but it was like you know often the centerpiece was a piece of fish or a piece of meat um and that's like the combinations of flavors that people have grown up with and they've been grown up cooking um and that's when you're learning the most when you're really really young is watching your mum or your dad in the kitchen um and seeing what they're doing and ultimately like you know putting together complex what seem to be complex plant-based meals um isn't something people have seen um so it is like 100% like an education thing um, from how to make plants taste good um, and trying to like, you know, stop that myth of it, of it being complicated that you can cook really quick, tasty, simple plant-based meals with not that many ingredients that you don't need to go and buy all these weird and wonderful products um, that cost you a fortune, you know, that, it, that you just sort of making it a very simple, wholesome, enjoyable process. And that's, that's what we're trying to do really. Absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. I did veganuary for the first time last, last year. And, um, I was actually surprised by how like great food you could cook with quite simple ingredients. And actually, once you just found some good recipes that you liked, it's actually like super simple. Um, to your point though, like, yeah. I, I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of people. It's this concept of like the meat is the core ingredient of the meal. And if you remove that mm. then it's like, what have you got left? Do you find like a way around that yeah. is just trying to shift the perception of like, you don't need that. That isn't your core ingredient. You can have these really delicious meals without me. Or do you think actually there's a part to play for like the alternatives we're starting to see um, yeah. coming out more and yeah. more like the supermarkets? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so at the beginning and sort of until relatively recently, we deliberately tried to make all of our dishes all about the veg and the plants and, you know, making them the centerpiece um, of dishes um, and basically 100% of our recipes didn't include meat alternatives. Part of that was also from a packaging perspective. We didn't want to go down the whole like chilling products route um, because, you know, not only is it better for the environment, but it's also a cost saving um, as a business. Um, and so, but more recently, we have started to explore the whole meat alternatives thing and my goodness, is it like just come on so much, even in the last like three years that we've been running. I mean, some of the products are insane. Um, and, you know, without sort of listing out too many brand names, we like, you know, working with this now and we're working with Herrera um, and like looking at, you know, various other um, like products uh, out there, which are just so good and so tasty. And it's allowing us to do more of the sort of, I guess, the classics, like, you know, um, bangers and mash, chicken Caesar salads, like all those things that, you know, people know what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to taste like and doing like a grubby version of them where, you know, you can make people's ears prick up and we have like messages from people saying, Oh, like I tried this on my boyfriend or my girlfriend and I didn't tell her it was, um, didn't tell her it wasn't me and she like didn't actually believe me at the end of it. Um, and, uh, so like, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see people's reactions to it um 
and we're definitely there definitely basically is demand for that stuff um and you do you know ultimately you do use less ingredients um when you put a meat alternative product like in one of our recipes because you don't sort of need as much other stuff um to sort of bring to the table almost um so yeah there probably is less ingredients that you use but there's ways and means of drawing flavor out of um out of veg as well yeah no absolutely and and i think that's that's the really positive thing i take from this like the just general kind of plant-based space is that the it's come along so much last like five years of the innovation and creativity around the products available now in the supermarkets the meals you can buy even going out to restaurants like i think although there's still barriers existing actually they're becoming less and less like educational awareness is much better the range of products and meals available to you um is much better now so more and more people are um switching to like plant-based or just more plant-based meals in their diet as opposed to, to like meat-based yeah um which is great to Definitely. see um so probably a good time to come back to you and grubby then so um you kind of mentioned you, you know the idea you had and, and that came from um working in the coaching space and seeing an opportunity um could you just explain for the, the listeners like exactly what grubby is yeah yeah so um probably should have said already really but yeah we're a plant-based recipe kit business we provide all the pre-portioned ingredients that someone needs to cook up a delicious healthy meal at home um and uh, like our mission as a business is basically to make it really easy and accessible for the world to eat more plants um and you know I, yeah i guess it comes back to that thing of so many people are still cooking at home and that's the space that that we're in we're trying to make it really really simple really straightforward fun as well so our recipes come with a spotify playlist um to cook to music and just sort of take away a bit of the sort of mundaneness of of, of cooking um and um and yeah and yeah basically the whole like aspect of recipe kits in general not just grubby is that you're taking away the sort of um thinking um aspect of you know the aimless supermarket sweeps and you know wandering around not actually knowing what to cook getting in an argument with your partner about what you're going to eat that night and all that stuff that goes with um the the evening weekday cooking routine that we're trying to take that away and just present you with, uh, you know, a bag of great ingredients that you can cook something really tasty with. Um, so yeah, definitely. And uh, if if anyone was going to go and try grubby, like what what's some of the best dishes that you'd recommend? Cool. Well, I actually had um, the first. It's the first time I've had it. Um, the uh, it's like sausage and fennel pasta, which is like a sort of like really nice fennel tomato ragu with this sausages almost like sort of crushed up into the pasta last night. Um, but that's then saying that I'm all, I'm all about the meat alternatives, but I actually do really like some of our like veg fish dishes as well. Um, so, um, yeah, like I, I like, I like the laksa, like our, our laksa and our tempeh ramen as well. Um, so yeah, several things. Oh, that well, sounds good. You're making me hungry. <laughs> um, and the, um, you know, the name Grubby, quite a unique name for a business. Um, well, yeah, where did that come yeah. from? What was the idea behind it? So the whole thing with Grubby was that we wanted something that was going to be really memorable, that stood out, that wasn't like, you know, it was very gender neutral as a brand. And yeah, Grubby basically came from the idea of fresh veg straight out the ground. You know, when you're cooking naturally, it's a very messy process. Um, and we're not about like a perfect like experience. Cooking is naturally just messy. Um, so Grubby came from that sort of combination of like veg being mucky when you get them out of the ground on the farm to being in the kitchen and just being like a bit of a grubby process um and um sort of embracing that as a process and just having fun with it yeah really like it really like it uh, and then um i guess coming back to those early days so, so you you had this idea and this concept in mind 
how did you go about validating that idea and, and like knowing there was enough there in terms of potential to then like commit you, you know, big portion of your life to yeah. growing the business? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is blind optimism, to be honest. <laughs> like, you know, um, in those early days, you are, uh, you know, I left my job. I quit my job. I had no real um, idea if it was going to actually work. I set about cooking these recipes in my flat. Um, yeah, loads of friends were like, what are you doing? You know, um, like you're not working. Are you just like, what are you doing? Just cooking recipes? Like, yeah, that's what I'm doing kind of thing. And so it does take a lot of sort of just belief in the idea of originally working because you have to do so much stuff to even start proving that it's a concept. Um, so I guess, yeah, initially probably spent around six months um, doing the sort of graph before even testing it on people. Um, and, you know, that was a, it was a really yeah, t- tricky time because you just got no idea if things are going to pan out. And then, yeah, after that, I think that the thing that I'd say is that just testing and getting feedback um, was absolutely key to the whole thing. And when we did that, I say we, it was literally me at that point. When I'd rock up to these offices and stick some rescue bags on the, um, what was effectively a glorified shelving unit with a um, with an iZettle on it, um, I'd watch that unit. I'd see how people interact with it. I was giving people £5 off the next day if they filled out this little Google form that I'd set up. Um, and, uh, you know, just they'd give me like really honest feedback. Um, and uh, yeah, that was like absolutely critical to it evolving. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember like there's this one like spice blend that I used that absolutely blew everyone's heads off that I gave them to, um, which is lucky I did it in the early days because now it would be blowing off about three or 4,000 people's heads. So, um yeah so yeah essentially i'd say that just gathering that feedback and getting really honest um people around you to say whether something's decent or whether it's not and and not being kind of put out by somebody thinking something's crap because you've just got to move on from it and and ditch it um and not get too attached to things as you go along yeah very good advice and then you uh launched kind of late 2019 so like around the corner covid was coming like unknowingly and that was a huge disruptor for for every business. Like for, for Grubby, was was that like a disruption in a good way? Like, did it set you on a different path or, or like accelerate certain things, or did it was it like a big setback you really had to try and bounce back from? It's a weird one because at the time it felt like a massive setback. Um, I mean, I landed back at my mum and dad's. Um, sort of woke up the next morning thinking, right, uh, we're not going to be delivering twenty offices anytime soon, um, and basically just thought right um we had one investor at the time which was very lucky we had this guy um who invested 100k at, at, at the start uh, and that was very fortunate timing and i say it's about timing that was very fortunate and um, that we had that money in the bank because i'd probably you know well i'd spent too much of my own money basically that i didn't have um already um and didn't really have much of that left um so but yeah in terms of covid covid came along I started bodging together a website with a friend who was actually supposed to be going traveling for a year. Um, he was good at the tech side of things. And then he came back a week later from, I think it was Argentina or something and said, Oh, can I help you put together this website? Um, so we, we did that for the first two months of lockdown. I was frantically getting mates and family to deliver flyers, knocking on doors. Um, I was going around, you know, we'd sweep sort of these big apartment buildings, knock on their doors, say what we were doing, give them a flyer um, with a mask on, obviously, um, and then say that we were going to be delivering in the area, you know, very, very soon. Um, and that's how we got our original, like, starting customers. Um, and uh, I think in the early days, I mean, even now as well, it's like we we were so kind of anal about going back to those customers 
making sure that it was me and this girl Songi who now heads up our operations um, at the start. And we would go back to the same customers every week and we make sure that we'd actually deliver that box, you know, because they'd got to know us as a person. Um, and like some of those early customers, you know, well, a lot of them are still with us today. And, you know, the, the, the family that we delivered to, um, the, the very first customer we delivered to, uh, they're still a customer now and they've actually invested in, they invested in our crowdfunding round um and put you know put some money into that and that was like you know when they phoned me up to ask me about that they'd never done the investing before and i just felt so kind of i just didn't want to give them any advice and i it's but it just made me feel so so good that you know some of our sort of early adopters were so passionate about what we were doing um so yeah definitely yeah and i think that level of humility and having zero ego and just constantly seeking out feedback and acting on it is it's just absolutely critical at every stage but especially in the early stages um, you talked a little bit about there about, um, you know, your friend and like tech and I guess someone as, as someone who works in the tech space, always keen to understand because I've seen e-commerce businesses be successful both ways, both kind of building tech in-house as well as outsourcing it. Um, w- which route have you gone down yeah. and, and why? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so from a tech perspective, I never appreciated how much tech was going to be involved in our business. Genuinely had absolutely no idea. I don't come from a tech background, don't profess to be some techie um and but we are you know we are a food business don't get me wrong but we're a food business that is very very heavily tech based um and you know i know that there's lots of people who've raised hundreds of millions on the back of saying that they're a tech business um but uh, and you could probably argue the same sort of you know premise with us that we are a, 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 you know a tech business to a degree but yeah i mean it's a huge part of what we do um, when you consider like the operations side of things, just as, like one example, we now have, um, you know, 10 to 12 recipes to choose from on a weekly basis that presents us with about a thousand different combinations of, uh, of recipe bags that can go in every, any given box. Um, it's around 160,000 SKUs, um, that will be going into those boxes. That's 160,000 opportunities to make a mistake. So even just from like a, uh, a backend, uh, technology point of view, you know, to implement the, 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 the systems to make that packing process efficient and make that delivery process efficient. That's just like one part of the tech. Um, and then you've got the whole like front end solution, um, of building out a tech stack. Um, but I mean, basically just, just going back a bit, we started out on Shopify, which a lot of people will, will have heard of. It's a, um, you know, it's a, a base website builder, a bit like Squarespace and various others that are out there started on that. And, we were like messaging people on Facebook live chat to take their orders. It was a complete like budget job. Um, and, uh, but ultimately getting started on that was the right thing to do. Uh, we lasted up, I think we lasted on there for about six months, maybe a bit less, um, before we realized there was absolutely no way we could continue using Shopify. Um, and we, um, worked, started working with an agency up in Leeds. Um, and they've, uh, we still work with them now. Um, so we have outsourced our technology to, to answer your question. Um, and we have a small team up there that we work very closely with on every single project that, that, that is happening. Um, and, but yeah, in, you know, in the future, it might be a combination of outsourced, some in-house, um, and then we'll just sort of see how that kind of evolves over time. Really. There's definitely like pros and cons for each. Um, you know, some would say that you can, outsource your tech to faraway countries for much cheaper we haven't chosen to do that we've kept it within the uk um and you know there is also argument that you have your own tech team that holds value for like investors and um 
you know, sort of almost improving that proving that you are a tech business. But um, yeah, we've we've taken this route, and so far it's been the sort of I guess you know a slightly more cost effective route than um, hiring some you know enormous tech team. And I think it's possibly the sort of more kind of agile way to do it at the start as well. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just what fits your business and your needs at that time. And um, yeah, you know, if you start to build out a tech team, <laughs> it could be a very costly exercise. And if you get it wrong, or um, yeah, you know, have people leave and stuff, it yeah, it quickly mounts up. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. One thing that I was really impressed by was like just the level of like thought and effort they got into building a business as like sustainably as possible. Um, so I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about was just like internally, like how do you think about sustainability? Like do you structure, how, do you think of it in different parts of the business or in some particular way? And then secondly, like can you talk through some of the things that you've put into place within the business to be as sustainable as possible? Yeah. Um, so I guess like in terms of how I think about sustainability, it's definitely from like an overall like supply chain point of view um, and what we're doing at every single level, every decision that we make like across the business, mainly operationally, I guess. Um, and, you know, right from the beginning, obviously being a plant-based business was you know, incredibly helpful from a sustainability point of view. But then when you start to get presented with all these decisions that you need to make about, you know, what type of box material you use, what type of material you use for your bags, what you're packing, herbs and spices and all these ingredients, like are they recyclable, are they not? And, you know, a lot of the time you're sort of put, you know, if something is put in front of you, you've got, you know, one supplier saying they can do this non-recyclable, you know, material for super cheap or you can, you know, use this recyclable product or this compostable material, but it is going to cost you, you know, 15p more for every pack of that thing that you send out. and it it really is like a bit of a conundrum every time you have these decisions. And basically we've tried to, um, you know, make sure that everything in our box is, is recyclable. And um, there is certain things that are, are challenging, but the vast majority of our products recyclable. A lot of them are compostable. Um, so the, the, the pods that we use, for example, they're biodegradable, um, that like where we pack all of our sort of spice blends and, and that stuff. Um, um, but there are certain things that which are just super challenging where like plastic actually still does a, a good job. And that is the honest truth of it is food is a challenging thing to make safe and um, make it travel well and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we've tried all sorts of possible materials on our herbs. Um, you know, we're not for the lack of trying and we will continue to do that. But you know, we currently use recyclable plastic for, for that. Um, and but, you know some compostable materials suck moisture out of ingredients and then you have like dry you know herbs at the end of it and all these different considerations and certain machinery won't um that is like old school machinery that a lot of these packing facilities use um doesn't actually take compostable film through it so then if you want to go down that route you have to invest in heavy duty machinery that's really expensive um and so there's a lot of sort of practical decisions that you're sort of making along the way um basically um yeah 
yeah yeah and i think these things are always going to be complex um and you know some of the other things i i noticed as well outside of like well i guess like talking about supply chain i think you also the produce you use as well is as like local as possible it's yeah. all within the uk yeah so so from a produce point of view um we use a business called what's farm not not everything is sourced in the uk we try and get as much as we can within the uk obviously there's some things that you know naturally the off season or avocados unfortunately we don't grow them here just yet um maybe soon uh at this rate um but uh yeah so we do source some stuff from overseas but we try and keep everything as, as seasonal as we possibly can so that we are sourcing as much as we can within the uk and actually in the early stages that was really difficult because when you haven't got a massive recipe range you're having to recycle recipes more often and you can't you can't be as flexible with it and you can't be as seasonal with it whereas now as we're evolving our recipe range we're able to be a bit more um sort of strategic about where we're putting recipes in terms of their point in the year and that they can't actually go in certain months because you know we don't think it's the right thing to do um but you know, j- just from a, um, a sustainability point of view, we felt it was really important that customers had the opportunity to actually see and for it to be really transparent to them. Um, so we we worked for a long time to get this um, impact tracker live. Um, so effectively, in customers' accounts, they can track the carbon footprint of every meal, every grubby meal that they've had. Um, and we worked with a business called My Emissions, who allowed us to track all the carbon impacts of our recipes and then compare them to the closest meat equivalent. So whether it was like a mushroom stroganoff compared to a beef stroganoff, um, that it would then look at that analysis and tell you how much carbon you're saving by making that choice. Um, and then it was also at the back end tracking how much veg that person had consumed, like portions of plants and how many meals they donated to children in poverty because we donate a meal for every box that we deliver. So we have this little dashboard in every customer's account where they can see live all the recipes they've had and the impact that they've had by by um, choosing them. Um, and the long-term ambition with that is to sort of gamify it and offer rewards for hitting certain milestones and all that type of stuff. So that that was something we felt passionately about was trying to be as transparent about the challenges as we possibly could. That it wasn't just like, oh, we're using plastic for this ingredient. It was, we're doing it for a reason. Um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, loads of stuff you just said that I absolutely yeah, really appreciate. Um, yeah, I think as a consumer, you really appreciate um, transparency, but also you um, appreciate knowing like what impacts you're having by buying this product or using this service. Um, yeah, I use Oddbox, and you know you get you get updates and tells you like what you're saving. So like what you've described that dashboard is is incredible. I don't think I've seen anything quite like that from like a, a food perspective yet. Going back to something you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I just wondered, like, when it comes to sustainability and like kind of operational efficiency, when you're doing things that are better for the planet, um, is that generally you're you're being more efficient with your resources, so you actually are going to be saving money in the long run, or is some of these decisions actually going to cost a bit more, but they just sit they sit in line with your values as a business and what you want to stand for? Yeah, it's it's a good one. I mean, I think generally right now for most stuff there is a green premium um, for making those greener decisions whatever that might be and in terms of the product there's some stuff which is weirdly cheaper like for example we're delivering a lot of our boxes um by bike particularly in london um and they and also we use electric um vehicles for sort of some of the outer um stretch and both of those couriers are actually cheaper than our nationwide courier um which that wasn't really like a deliberate decision based on cost. We always wanted to deliver by bike. That's what we want to roll out across the country. We want to do that in key cities across the UK. 
um but you need a level of scale to be able to do that um but yeah the, the vast majority i'd say aren't um as as rosy as that they are more expensive um but there's certain things that that do come out better and i hope that in the long term as like all the technology improves around these products and the, the level of investment that's going into them that actually it will become much more cost efficient to do that stuff and i, I think that is generally like the challenge for the whole piece around sustainability and around the environment and everything that the, the the global economy is trying to do is that it's got to get more cost efficient because ultimately these decisions are business decisions for people um, you know, if, you know, not everybody is running a plant-based recipe box. You know, um, the vast majority of them are just making business decisions: is this cheaper? Can I do it more efficiently? Yes or no? And if it's if it happens to be a sustainable product, then great. So that's the posi- That's the place that everything needs to get to: is that it's just better from from a cost point of view. I think. Yeah, no, I agree. But I, I think consumer behaviour is going in a way where you will have increased customer loyalty and retention from taking these extra efforts because it makes you stand out as a brand and it's much clearer like what you stand for as a business versus oh, just another milk kit company, cheap as possible, <laughs> it's a good product. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, um, my next question was around kind of like, you know, like the core product metric that you've been focused on for maybe like the last year or so. So I wondered like from a, you know, your, your revenue model is subscription, I believe. It's like you have to have like a minimum amount of orders uh meals per order i just wonder like in terms of your biggest challenge or the bench you've been focused on has that been like you know repeat orders and like uh you know uh removing churn or has it been more about like increasing average order value what's been the focus yeah so i mean i think for any subscription business they'll tell you that uh, retention <laughs> is the absolute key um yeah. so i don't think anything changes from that point of view for us um absolutely we're like hell-bent on on you know, ensuring that our retention is is good and that we have good repeat purchase rates. And for us, that probably translates into really the number of times a customer orders in any given month, any given six months, any given 12 months. And those three stats are quite big for us. Um, so it's like the speed at which they order within that first month uh, and then how many times they then generally order over the course of the year. Um, and if those numbers are always going up, then effectively you're reducing the amount of time it, it takes to, for that customer to pay back on the cost of acquisition um and so cost of acquisition is, is a big thing yep. obviously and you have to have you know quite strict parameters around what your average cost of acquisition is but then as long as your retention's good you can afford to pay more to acquire those customers um because they'll pay back eventually and you can prove that so yeah, we're we're very much focused on on the number of times that a customer orders in a in a given period of time. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And then just to chat about funding for a moment, because um, you're you're one yeah. of the few guests I've had on the show that have uh, I know you're partially crowdfunded, but you've done quite a bit of crowdfunding. Um, I just wondered, like, you know, what led you to go down the crowdfunding option, and like, you know, what the pros yeah. and cons of that compared to like venture funding? Yeah, so I guess crowdfunding came about relatively early on we started out with angel investment we had one angel investor that took a pretty decent chunk and have absolutely no regrets over that whatsoever um he's been an amazing um mentor and guide for me throughout the entire process and um you know i think getting that first first angel investor right is just so critical um to how the business evolves um and not just taking anyone's money because you've got to be able to get along with that person for like a long time um so that would be my sort of first thought on it. And then when we went down the kind of crowdfunding route, um, I'd sort of seen a lot of businesses that had done that. And I think that businesses that are right for crowdfunding are 
very much direct to consumer businesses where um you know customers that are on the platform are probably going to be people who buy your product uh, and be like really really engaged advocates for the brand um and that's what that's why we chose to take that route and i think the the positives for for crowdfunding are exactly that you get an amazing group of people we've now got um around a thousand two two crowdfunding rounds about a thousand investors um in the business some that put in 10 quid some that have put in 50 100 grand um and um that's the positive is that you have all these amazing advocates i think the downside is it's it's it isn't a simple process or as simple as maybe it appears on the surface there's a lot a lot of due diligence it's um time consuming the the, the you know the level of stuff that has to go into the video the campaign um the scrutiny um of of the campaign um before you go live from like they they're very sort of heavily regulated as an industry so it's not um i basically wouldn't say to anyone that you should go into it thinking that it's going to be um you know i'll just pop on the crowd and and raise you know half <laughs> yeah. a million and, and jobs again kind of thing because <laughs> it very much isn't that um and also there's a bit of a everyone sort of kind of knows it who's in the industry but maybe outside it's a bit of a um dark art almost is that a lot of the money that's raised on crowdfunding comes ahead of the crowd so you know you, you do effectively pre-rounds with angels with bigger raises or with venture capitalists as well and i mean to get to when we went live on crowdfunding this last time it took about nine months well six to nine months to um get that prior investment locked down um, and pretty much signed and sealed before you actually then go live on the crowd so they're they are investing on the crowd but it's all been very much worked on for a long yeah. period of time leading up to that um and that's where you get the biggest success on on crowdfunding is that you can prove that you've got big backers who have obviously done their due diligence themselves um and and then the crowd is why it's called crowdfunding follow you know what what these sort of well you know well known whatever you want to call them investors are, are putting in their money into yeah really interesting and and you know looking ahead in terms of how you're going to be spending um you know that, that money you've, you've you've raised um what's what's in store for grubby over the next couple of years like what are you most excited about yeah i mean there's loads of things i mean uh, from the point of view of just purely expanding our choice flexibility variety of our product itself you know that like is always just going to really excite me we've got so much as we're saying like this meat alternative stuff coming through that developing all these classic dishes that we're putting a grubby spin on um you know classic meat-based dishes almost is is really cool and we've got some like great stuff that's coming out um even at the moment um which is yeah it's great like and i, I can't wait for people to taste those dishes um but then from a you know spending the money point of view obviously there's a big part of it that will go towards our our growth um from a marketing point of view across a, a whole variety of different channels um we're looking at um creating effectively like a bit of a marketplace for um people to add plant-based products to their boxes um so that you know um, if people want to buy some you know really nice local speciality coffee um they can add that to their grubby box and creating it basically just adding a level of convenience um where people are doing more plant-based cooking in their spare time outside of grubby you know they can buy you know a tub of nutritional yeast from us or those staple products that um you know people would would use in their in their kitchen so um that's like a, another thing that we're that we're working on that we haven't really sort of shouted about too much as yet um and and yeah and then technology is obviously something that you know it is expensive but we have got to keep up 
optimizing that experience and there's so much stuff that we want to do from a technology standpoint um to just keep improving and keep optimizing the sort of customer experience and how convenient it is as a product nice nice well i'm going to be keeping my out for these all, all these updates and things happening um to talk yeah. about you know a bit more just you personally like as a founder um obviously this is your first business to my knowledge that you founded um like what's been your biggest surprise so far about being a founder or like what's been like the biggest lesson learned yeah pretty big question <laughs> um i guess like um being a sole founder is is I mean, I, I you know, speak to lots of other founders and there's definitely pros and cons for each of having a co-founder and not having a co-founder. I think in the early days, it is, um, yeah, exceptionally lonely experience, I'd say. Um, and like trusting your instincts is, is really all you, all you can do. Um, and obviously, you know, things get easier as you, as you have like a team, a team around you. But I think the, the learning experiences that you go through is, is a lot about your role is constantly changing, but you go from like at the beginning where I'd be knocking on doors, delivering flyers, packing spice blends with teaspoons, getting to the packing unit and at five in the morning and stuffing spinach into bags, you know, like, and then you suddenly go from that to speaking to somebody who's considering giving you a million pounds and you're trying to put together, you know, some complex data room uh, of information you know, to satisfy their needs from a financial point of view, you know, I'm no, I'm uh, the team will tell you, I'm literally no whiz on Excel, that's for sure. Um, and you know, that was like, there's, there's all these different areas that you struggle in as an individual and you're sort of like hacking your way through at the start. And I think that's the, you know, some, but sometimes basically it's that like level of uncertainty of going through these different phases and then being like, what is my role right now? Like, where do I fit into this jigsaw? Um, and I think that is definitely you know um something that is always changing and maybe that was like a, a little bit of a surprise is that your your role is changing all the time and you and there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen to you know you know everything around you and the team around you and how you're trying to hire to basically plug the gaps in all the areas of your expertise that you're basically crap at and you need people to to be able to support you in that and that's how a team evolves i guess yeah yeah and i think you know certain people thrive in that, in that situation where you're dealing with so many different things on a daily basis context switching all the time like you said you can't be good at all so then it's like identifying your weaknesses plugging those gaps um talk about your strengths though like uh, a question i sometimes ask is like what, what do you think is your like founder superpower like what's something about you that's quite unique that really makes you great in in the, your role as a founder <laughs> tricky one um i guess like i enjoy I've all, I mean, a lot of people say it, but I do enjoy working with people and like creating like relationships that, you know, are, are meaningful. And I think, you know, we are quite a subcontractor heavy business. Uh, we're like quite a small um, internal team. We've kept things quite lean um, in, in that sense. And I think maybe one of my strengths has been developing really good partnerships with all these different subcontractors, whether that be you know, setting up our delivery, our technology subcontracts, our marketing subcontractors, our tech, you know, everything that's like gone into the, the, you know, the packing process and everything around that. Um, I'd say maybe that's been quite a big part of what I've done um, and sort of naturally maybe lent into because there's a lot of, you know, building up relationships that, that kind of goes into that as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you, you, you have to incentivize them in, in the right way, but obviously you can't just pay everyone loads of money. So it's kind of like getting that balance right of, of like... No, exactly. 
Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. That's a pretty good superpower. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, um, you know, the, the life of a founder that like you said is, uh, tricky dealing with lots of different things you're not going to be good at them all um it's super stressful at times like how do you personally like manage your own mental health and well-being like what mm. works well for you yeah um i mean not that well all the time that's for sure it's um you know very very topsy-turvy up and down kind of process um particularly when it comes to the whole fundraising piece um you know we've now done a few few rounds and they're all um very stressful um periods of time as i'm sure a lot of founders can relate to um and I, I wouldn't say i'm you know by any means sort of world expert in in sort of um decompartmentalizing you know time between business and personal life uh, in fact i'd say i'm probably quite bad at it but i i think from uh you know just from mental health and well-being point of view i heavily rely on exercise um you know getting out going doing big workouts in the evening um or you know even in the day sometimes um it, you know works well for me um and trying yeah definitely more recently i've been very conscious of actually having my weekends um because i think i used to find myself especially like let's guess in the early days still early days but you know in the first year or so just constantly working and saturday i'd go to a cafe and i'd sit in the cafe all day and i'd just work all day and then i'd do the same thing on sunday and then by the time i got to monday i'd just worked seven days and you become like useless you become very unproductive and although it seems like a really good idea at the time and thinking our country we have a bit of a culture of like work 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 and if you're not working what you're doing kind of thing but you know there's so much to be said for actually having rest on like a regular basis and not wait you know i'm not like a really really early riser some some founders are like super early risers um you know uh and so i think you're know, getting sleep getting rest ultimately makes you more productive and alert when you actually get to work um so that's probably probably how i yeah deal with it i guess yeah no i think that's really good advice uh, i've definitely been there as well where you just work at work and i think what i've learned over time is you, there will be times you have to work late in the evening, pull an all night to do some stuff at the weekend, but then try and balance it out with time off when you can afford it, when things are a bit quieter, take the afternoon, spend some with your family, exercise, wherever it is. Yeah, totally. And it's and I think for, I, I've spoken to other founders who sort of say, it's very much about the guilt. Like you feel this, I get it, but you just feel this overriding guilt for not working and you feel like you should be all the time. Um, and it took me a while to sort of get over that thing of you cannot be doing that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And you go on a holiday or you have a break like it's needed it's necessary and you shouldn't feel like guilty for it and that is definitely a really easy trap to just feel like you should be doing stuff all the time absolutely i, I still find that emotion now but i have to remind myself i'm like well think about all those times yeah. you've worked weekends missed out on you know bar time bedtime with the kids yeah. and stuff because you've had to work it's it's all fair it evens out um yeah final final kind of part of the the pod is, is just chatting a bit about kind of building a tech for good business and we already went into quite a bit of detail earlier about kind of how you've got about building a very uh you know, business as sustainable as possible and constantly working on that so my question is actually like if, if someone was listening who's about to start up their own like d2c business or they're on the early stages of doing so what, what's some like good advice in the early stages of if they want to be as sustainable or responsible as possible like what are some good initial steps to take yeah um i think that one of the challenges, and it's probably not necessarily down the advice route, but one of the challenges at the beginning is, you know, you are small by the virtue of the fact you've just started. Um, and trying to do, you know, order products, particularly in the food industry, you know, hitting minimum order quantities, all that stuff is 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 
challenging and you, you just have to go into these things with the right intentions and you know and understand that there might be like larger costs for for doing things certain ways but you know as long as you, i think the main thing is setting yourself like a, a kind of like guiding set of principles that that you abide by and that you know some things that you just won't do um and you know regardless of what the implications are um but yeah i think i think that's the thing is is you know, we have we have quite um we've become quite uh, sort of strict on the whole like st- strategic pillars that we have like we have um pillars heading into 2022 that we've filled out with all the different initiatives that we that we, we plan to do within those pillars and I think the same thing kind of like applies to sustainability um but then the the only other thing I'd, I'd sort of say is you know things like b corp which obviously we've gone down the b corp route is not feeling like you have to do that stuff too early because you know as long as you're doing things in what you feel is the right way um then you can always tweak things as you go and there's a lot of these kind of processes certifications things that people feel they need to become carbon neutral straight away and all that stuff it's like they take time and that is time away from the business at the beginning and i think i I got quite obsessed with trying to get all these things done right at the start when actually it just wasn't the right thing to be doing um you know went down rabbit holes with some of these things and you realize you just need to crack on and actually run the business and and worry about getting those certifications and things later on um that's probably probably be my advice at the start yeah, that sounds good. And, and the way I look at it is like any other day is the best thing you can do is just be really clear on like your your values and your mission, like know the direction you're heading yeah. towards and know like the values to me, like your moral compass. So they allow you to help you with those decisions on like, where do we compromise? We don't compromise on that. Um, and that will help you make yeah. decisions around sustainability if that is part of like what you want to be core to your business. Um, you mentioned B Corp. Um, Definitely. Congratulations on, on getting the B Corp certification. I know that's not easy. I think I looked at it once. It was like two, three hundred questions just to do the, the initial questionnaire. Um, <laughs> did you, was that was that? Um, I guess was that really helpful in the sense of like, were you doing a lot, a lot of that stuff anyway? So it's just more kind of affirmation of what you were doing, or has that been giving you like an even clearer framework of like how we can be more responsible, more sustainable by going through that process? I think. I think a bit of both, to be honest. There was definitely lots of stuff where we went through and we were like, okay, this is great. We're, we're actually doing a lot of these things. And then there was other stuff that, you know, we maybe hadn't thought so much about. I think particularly from like an internal point of view, B Corp is not just about environment, and uh, which is, some people sort of think it is, but it isn't. It's, you know, about how you manage your team and your workforce and the people and the suppliers that you work with. And um, I think, yeah, that was probably a, a part of it that, it allowed us to really think about, okay, we definitely need a HR manual now and we need to think about what we stand for within that. Um, uh, and so there was, there was definitely like processes like that that we went through as part of the BCOP process that were needed for sure as we were scaling. Um, and I think it was a good time for us to really think about um, a lot of those, you know, other things that we maybe hadn't given too much thought to. Um, and I mean, the BCOP movement is in general is like, is amazing. I mean, I went to this event uh, the week before last, actually, which was the, the first thousand B Corps, um, and they had it at the Natural Natural History, History Museum, um, and it was like such a sort of inspiring event. Like all these really cool businesses, like in one room together. They literally had one person from all one thousand companies. I went there thinking there was going to be about nice. twenty thirty people at this networking event, <laughs> and then got there, and there was a thousand founders basically in a room together. Um, and uh, you know that sort of you know force for good of all these businesses that are trying to like figure out solutions together um is really powerful and everyone is 
really supportive of each other, I'd say. And we like a lot of the partnership stuff we do with brands that go in our boxes. So many of them are B Corps. Um, and we've, and we've met them through that, um, through that network. Um, and I think you are just so much more like closely aligned as brands when you know that they've gone through that process. And, um, to your point at the beginning, it's, it's a difficult process, but if it wasn't, and it's a, you know, it is a bit of a, uh, well, it's, it's tricky and, you know, can be very frustrating. Um, but if it wasn't like that, then, um, it wouldn't be a worthwhile thing to be going after because it would be too easy and everybody it would be able to do it. So um yeah 100 percent. so um i guess wrapping things up now um for anyone listening that's interested in following like the grubby journey where's best to follow you on socials uh so at grubby meal kits is our instagram handle um and then grubby.co.uk is our website um and uh yeah you can order for you know, the following week um and uh yeah i hope you know people will get on the bandwagon with the January this year and um you know well i think i think this is going to be going out in january and uh yeah so hopefully we'll be in the midst of it when that's all happening and it's, it looks like a super busy time for us so yeah um love for people to try our product for sure definitely definitely well look martin it's been a, an absolute pleasure like really enjoyed the conversation thanks for coming on and uh, look forward to following your journey thanks greg appreciate it thanks for listening to today's episode if you've enjoyed it please subscribe share this episode and leave us a review we're just getting started out so it would mean a lot to us this episode was brought to you by craig turner produced by jabril al and sponsored by jobs for good until next time